Injection drug use is becoming increasingly common in sub-Saharan Africa. The prevalence of use ranges from 0 to 3% in the general adult population, and in Kenya, Tanzania, Nigeria, Mauritius and South Africa, the number of persons who inject drugs is growing. Along with the use of injection drugs comes a list of complications, including infectious complications. So the focus of today's episode is microbiology in people who inject drugs. This is Microbe Mail and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. My guest today is Dr. Evan Shul. Evan, thanks so much for joining me today. Please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Vin. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Evan Shul. I'm a physician and an infectious diseases physician working in a uh, big central Johannesburg hospital in a very urban uh, setting where we receive a lot of patients from downtown Johannesburg and also referred in from uh, other more uh, more rural areas. So we get to see a great range of uh, conditions across the board. So a couple of reminders before we head into this episode. Remember to sign up for updates on our website. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast player of choice. You can follow us on social media as well. And that would be on X, Instagram or Facebook. All of our team members have LinkedIn pages as well. So you can follow us there. Also remember to give us a five-star rating on your podcast player of choice. And last but not least, please make sure to share Microbe Mail with any of your colleagues, students, or anyone who might benefit from or be interested in this content. Please help us reach other African countries and other low and middle income countries as well. Okay, Evan, let's start. And I think the first question to get us going on this is, why is injection drug use becoming so important for infectious diseases and microbiology? And more specifically, if you're in other specialties or even in general practice, why would you need to know about it? Well, then I think you, you touched on this in your, in your intro where you spoke about the, um, the incidence, the increasing numbers um, particularly in a place like uh, South Africa, where documenting the just the pure numbers of people who use drugs or people who inject drugs, uh, that that data is is a very grey area and uh, and and obviously very liable to be grossly underreported. So, within the South African context, um, I think the the usage. Is probably a lot higher than than we would uh, anticipate, and and the and the overall numbers uh, are almost certainly uh, increasing. Um, I think the other thing within the South African context is that we we have a very urban bias towards these sorts of situations where we feel that it's only really the big cities that experience people who who use drugs. Um, but uh, more and more data is, is showing that there are um, increasingly rural pockets of uh, injection, injecting drug use. I think the other thing, just regarding why it's it's really important for us within infectious diseases and, and microbiology, is that very often something like drug use would form part of a social history, which which we take when we when we're seeing patients. Um, and that history is often totally inadequate. It's a, it's a very brief uh, history that, uh, that we take. It, it doesn't necessarily explore the, 
the depths of uh, people's personal and private lives, uh, especially when it comes to things like sexual histories, alcohol and, and, and drug use, are particular blind spots. Um, maybe within infectious diseases, we, we love really getting to the nitty-gritty of that side of things. But I think for a lot of other disciplines, like you mentioned, or, or in general practice, there are a lot of time pressures. And so the finer nuances of people's personal lives uh, don't often make it into the uh, sort of main, um, the main history. And then, of course, particularly in South Africa, where we have such a high prevalence of HIV, um, you know, people who, who, who inject drugs form... Uh, such a, an, an important component of the key populations that are often neglected within the, the HIV epidemic. Those are really, really important points, especially on the social history. Are there any specific IV drugs that you think are associated with um, infectious diseases or anything in particular related to South Africa that might be different from other parts of the world? Um, not necessarily. I think the only thing really that's particular to South Africa is maybe the terminology and the street names of, of certain things. But otherwise, the, the core uh, components of uh, what's used are, are, are similar. Things like Nyalpe and Wunga are heroin-based. Uh, and so there's, there, there isn't anything from necessarily from a core ingredient point of view that's particular to South Africa. Thanks, Evan. That gives quite a good picture, I think, for our international listeners as well. Are people who inject drugs at increased risk of infections compared to people who don't? And can you tell us what the possible reasons for this are? Yes, I think the people who inject drugs are definitely at increased risk of infections. Just from a a baseline incidence level, they're also at increased risk of um, developing more severe infections. And I, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that, more along social lines where people who use drugs are often subjects of an enormous amount of stigma. There's a great um, reluctance to seek um, healthcare because of the, the attitudes that a lot of healthcare workers have towards people who use drugs. And so the, the besides for the, the the capacity from a socioeconomic point of view for for people in this situation to access healthcare, even when they do access healthcare, they they experience such a an enormous uh, degree of antagonism, um, and so ultimately either uh, present late or they leave the hospital early, um, and so as a result, the risk of their infections um, is uh, significantly increased. Uh, also, in terms of the, the risk, um, obviously this relates intricately to the safe injecting practices. So for those <clears throat> who don't have access to clean injecting equipment, who don't have access to programs that are run uh, specifically aimed at this population, um, a lot of times the uh, the lack of access is a is a major um, precipitant for the risk of infections. Very few opioid substitution therapy um, projects 
Um, and so as a result, safe injecting practices um, are very difficult to access. And so as a result, these risks are, are increased. So there, there, there's a lot to, uh, to unpack when it comes to the risk um, that people who inject drugs experience. Um, unpacking uh, infection risk for the population of people who inject drugs, there are a lot of variables um, to consider, starting from the socioeconomic uh, bracket that a lot of people find themselves in. Um, often, this population uh, would would fall within a, a, a poverty bracket. Um, a lot of times, the access to healthcare is restricted <clears throat> due to the socioeconomics, but but also due to the attitudes and the um, uh, the stigma that comes with being uh, someone. Who uses drugs and access in healthcare uh, within South Africa, which doesn't have a very uh, evolved um, attitude uh, towards accommodating people who use drugs within the healthcare system. Evan, can you tell us about some of the syndromes that people who inject drugs commonly present with, and perhaps additional syndromes that one should be looking out for in people who inject drugs? Clinical syndromes that uh, we encounter within infectious diseases, and I think this would apply to a lot of people working uh, within general practice or uh, working within a an urban setting. The clinical syndromes can mostly be divided into three main groups. Um, so, number one are the skin and soft tissue uh, infections. Number two would be the infective endocarditis that we see complicating um, intravenous drug use. And number three would be the viral uh, infections that we see associated with uh, unsafe uh, injecting practices. And these viral infections obviously will include HIV, uh, hepatitis B, and uh, hepatitis C. So those are the infectious issues that's that's not even considering the uh, other multitude of um, complications that that we have to deal with in hospital when um, these patients are admitted such as the mental health implications the substance use implications um, overdose uh, withdrawal um, so that's the, the core elements of the complications of drug use that, that we also have to consider when caring for these, uh, these patients in the hospital. So just a reminder for the listeners that we're really just focusing on infections in this episode, but there's so much more to consider in this patient population. Now, can you talk us through what some of the pathogens are implicated in this disease process that can be directly attributed to the use of syringes? So when it comes to the skin and soft tissue infections, um, it would cover the whole spectrum of, um, of these infections from something as seemingly uh, benign as, as cellulitis and progressing to subcutaneous abscesses and, and necrotizing fasciitis. Um, very often... 
these infections are polymicrobial, which is maybe a little different to the usual times that we experience these uh, clinical syndromes in our practice. So for the most part, um, you know, if someone's coming in from the community with a skin or soft tissue infection, um, we can be pretty sure that we either dealing with a, a strep or a staph uh, infection. However, when it's related to um, someone who's using drugs, that microbiological spectrum uh, broadens quite significantly to, besides for the gram-positive cocci that we have to consider in the differential, we've obviously also got to consider gram-negative bacilli, particularly pseudomonas um, and uh, anaerobic uh, infections within our differentials of uh, skin and soft tissue infections. Something like endo uh, infective endocarditis is um, is certainly uh, increasing in incidence. The microbiology is different, the clinical presentation, the, the cardiology of it uh, is, is also very different to the infective endocarditis that we experience in people who present from the from the general population, obviously, as as most people would know, when it comes to the valve uh, involvement of infective endocarditis, um, it would mostly be right-sided uh, valve lesions, uh, particularly involving the, the tricuspid valve, <clears throat> and these infections can sometimes complicate with the um, septic emboli. Uh, and abscesses going to the lung. Okay, Evan, I'm going to be a typical microbiologist here. Um, and you did a pretty good job giving us a bunch of bug names there, but are there any additional organisms that are commonly associated with people who inject drugs, either due to associated risky behavior or for other reasons? The, the microbiology... Um, of it is, is quite similar to that which we mentioned uh, related to skin and soft tissue infections where still um, the most common would be gram-positive cocci, particularly um, staph infections. Um, we have to uh, always consider um, MRSA as, a, as an important cause in these, in these patients. Um, but then also... Um, What's interesting when it comes to considering the differential of uh, um, involved organisms with infective endocarditis, we, we, we have to consider um, gram negatives, but also uh, fungal um, causes for, for endocarditis um, in uh, people who, who inject drugs. Um, and then the third, the third group being um, the viral infections are probably some of the, the more common ones that, that we would have to deal with. And I think a lot of people working within um, general practice or, or working within the community experience um, would be the, the HIV, hepatitis B, and, and hepatitis D uh, infections relating to injecting drugs. Fantastic. I think that gives us a really good background from a clinical and a microbiological perspective. So I think let's try and dive in and talk now about how we would investigate a patient who injects drugs in whom you've suspected some infections. So I think regardless of the, of the presentation, um, it, 
is a really important responsibility we have to explore a number of the different risks um, that they'd be associated with. So, for example, screening for viral hepatitis, um, hepatitis A, uh, B and C, um, screening serologies, um, obviously an HIV test for those who either haven't had one or aren't already diagnosed. Um, and um, depending on the on the clinical presentation, um, you know, obviously if they're coming in with a, a, a cellulitis or an infective endocarditis, we would investigate um, them according to the usual protocols related to those particular infections. So um, things like blood cultures, even though blood cultures for skin and soft tissue infections don't have a very high um, hit rate, um, uh, certainly for infective endocarditis, we would um, investigate them uh, as we would any other suspected endocarditis uh, patient. Um, sometimes just relating to skin and soft tissue infections, um, one uh, important, one or two important points related to it is that even though the uh, anticubital fossa is uh, by far the, the, the most common site, for injecting, sometimes the, the, these patients can present um, with unusual sites um, uh, with cellulitis. So, um, obviously, they would um, try and inject wherever uh, a vein is is possible. So, very often the groin, uh, feet. Um, so, these are sites that. For example, if someone comes in with a fever of unknown origin, um, we, we've got to take off our blinkers and, and maybe be a, maybe be a bit more, uh, exhaustive with our examination, particularly looking for, um, so number one, unusual sites. And then number two, sometimes the, um, uh, infections are, are, are deeper uh, within the soft tissue and they actually need an ultrasound. To delineate whether there's an abscess or a, or a collection um, under the skin, and you know, very often um, when people who inject drugs come into hospital, there there are a multitude of different injecting sites that have been used. Sure, there might be some that that they <clears throat> that they focus on repeatedly, but um, very often um, it's it's not just one site. Um, and it's uh, it's always worthwhile remembering that there are likely to be a number of different sites that are implicated, particularly when it comes to uh, things like cellulitis or, or abscesses. And it's very hard, and it's sometimes quite quite hard to determine which is the offending um, area uh, that that is leading to their presentation. Um, just while I'm talking about the skin and soft tissue infection side of things, it's 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 also an important thing to remember that very often injecting practices um, predispose to thromboses. So a lot of times uh, these patients will have, besides for the cellulitis or uh, or an abscess, um, often there'll be thrombophlebitis and uh, deep vein thromboses. 
that could also present as a fever of unknown origin or, or may uh, become secondarily infected. Um, and that's, you know, thrombophlebitis or, or um, vascular infections are very nebulous entities, very difficult to diagnose, and also very difficult to tease out in the in the grander context of someone who's using a lot of different veins to to inject. So um, I think the main the main thing is really to not be laser focused on one particular area on one particular site, but really just to see um, this person's presentation as as an opportunity to uh, to look into a whole host of of other things that they are at risk of developing. Great, that was really really comprehensive, Evan. Now. This basically moves us on to management, but I think to start that conversation, we should probably start by highlighting the challenges in treating infections and managing just general hospitalizations in people who inject drugs. The management um, of these particular infectious issues really cannot be dealt with without considering the other elements of um the patient's care. So very often um, there are very complex um, social um, and psychological dynamics uh, that we have to contend with. Um, almost to a point where treating the infection is the easy part and dealing with the psychological and the, and the social components are, I think, far more trickier um, and I think a lot of us who, who, who work with these patients in the, in an in-hospital setting realize that, um, if the, um, if the, the drug use component or the psychological component is not, um, adequately addressed, then treating the infection is likely to be a non-starter. So just imagine the prospects of having someone with endocarditis who is normally um, used to being completely autonomous out in the community, um, maybe using drugs a few times a day, um, and is now incarcerated in, an hosp in a hospital um, shackled to a bed with monitors and drips and catheters and pipes. Uh, and now we are um, telling them that they can't leave, they can't do this, they can't do that, they can't go outside for a cigarette, they have to stay in the ICU, they have to be monitored. Um, very often there are a major um, sort of power dynamics that we have to negotiate um, in these situations. And unfortunately, this, this group, um, is commonly associated with the or leaving hospital, what the Americans call AMA against medical advice and what we call, um, RHT, refusing hospital treatment. And unfortunately, the healthcare establishment is incredibly biased, um, towards, uh, people who, choose to leave the hospital and often we don't uh we don't do a, a great job of exploring why they want to leave um, and we don't factor that into our overall management plan so dealing with the infection is is one component um dealing with the drug use um is another component that is notoriously 
poorly done, um, particularly in, in our um, setting where not many people are familiar with managing something like uh, opioid substitution therapy. Um, a lot of the um, psychiatric um, care is um, particularly regimental um, and and punitive. It's uh, it, it has to be a big part of the care that um, these patients receive. So it's a combination of treating the infection, um, treating or not really treating, but more managing or, or trying to control the substance use as best as possible, um, then considering the, the social and psychological uh, elements that that come with this. Um, and the traditional hospital environment is a very, very hostile um, environment for um, people who use drugs. Um, and very often that is a core component of the the care that we that we have to um, deliver. One is just a few um, other elements um, related to this population is the so things like venous access. So taking bloods um, is always quite tricky. There's a great reluctance for um, people who use drugs to have their veins used for, for drawing bloods. Um, there's a reluctance from the medical staff uh, side of things to put in uh, central lines or long lines. Um, a lot of us have terrible biases towards people who use drugs, thinking that once we've got a, um, a central line in, um, that they're more likely to leave the hospital and use their central line for for drug use. And, and you know, I think um, a lot of our decisions um, really uh, prejudice um, these patients. And, and as a result, they may uh, often be undertreated, you know, because we don't want to use certain types of venous access. One one thing that I, I must just mention, Vin, that is starting to hit the literature, which is maybe one uh, small silver lining in terms of managing infections in people who use drugs, is that you know before we would um, obsess over uh, intravenous management for things like septic arthritis or infective endocarditis, where intravenous management was the bottom line. Um, thankfully, that dogma is being challenged. Um, and so there is a big move towards not just within um, people who use drugs, but in just relating to these infections in the general population where um, incarcerating people in hospital for six weeks to get intravenous medication is, is, is not within anyone's best interest. And so the move to um, oral therapy for a lot of these infections is something that's thankfully uh, gaining a lot more traction. Uh, and I think I think when it comes to uh, dealing with um, people who use drugs, switching to oral therapy is is actually a win-win uh, for everybody uh, and, and something which 
you know, over the last few years, there's been a move in the literature to uh, focus on oral step down and and uh, within certain clinical syndromes, mostly related to uh, you know long term the traditionally long term um, antibiotic durations, so bone and bone and joint and infective endocarditis, and and I think um, moving to oral therapy, uh, especially in people who use drugs, will be a major. A development and a, and a major step forward in their overall clinical care. Great. Thanks. Thanks for covering all of those aspects. Can you comment on whether infections in people who inject drugs are associated with a higher morbidity or higher mortality? Yeah, I think um, for, for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned earlier, the morbidity and mortality is uh, certainly increased um in people who use drugs so you know we mentioned a bit earlier about um the difficulty that um people who use drugs have accessing healthcare and the delayed presentations because of their reluctance to present to a clinic or a hospital because of the uh, prejudices that a lot of healthcare workers have um and the stigma that's um associated with um drug use. So uh, an, another uh, comp- component of the morbidity, sometimes the mortality as well, is um, related to the lack of safe um, injecting equipment that's available to a lot of people who use drugs. And I think, I think it's such a basic uh, principle uh, in terms of mitigating the risks and and preventing the development of infections in the first place. So, you know, there's there's a there's a misconception that it's that it's the use of the injecting equipment that's responsible for the infections, but it's really the um, the use of unsafe injecting equipment that that lies at the root of the risks that uh, people who inject drugs um, experience. So I think um, uh, a, a, a lot of times um, sort of tied into the, to the poor social histories that we unfortunately take, um, the uh, intravenous drug use is not necessarily something that comes up um, early on. And so as a result, there may be delayed, um, besides for the delayed presentation, delayed diagnosis from our side, from the side of the of the clinician, if we don't consider some of the the subtleties of, um, you know, abscesses or thromboses or infective endocarditis um, as a as a cause of someone's fever. So, with the delayed presentation and the delay in making the diagnosis, unfortunately, that's uh, often associated with the higher morbidity and mortality. So that's just looking at you know, either the bacterial or potentially fungal um, elements. That's not even uh, looking into the the HIV and the hepatitis B or hepatitis C that um, uh, has to be considered uh, as well. And very, very often the the problem list that these patients present with is, is, is long uh, and it involves 
coming up with a, a batting order of management. Uh, and so sometimes the morbidity and mortality associated with the care of these patients may not necessarily be related to the issue that they came in with. Uh, it might be related to something like um, HIV or hepatitis C, which which didn't make the top three problem list when they were admitted into ICU with the infective endocarditis. You know, often these things fall down the list if they considered more chronic and more indolent. Um, and so I think there's the morbidity and mortality that's associated with the acute admission. And then we must never lose sight of the morbidity and mortality that's associated with the, the longer term uh, chronic issues that uh, sometimes fall off the radar. Now, you've already touched on some of the preventive interventions. Can you elaborate a little further on other preventive interventions we should be considering? There are a number of sort of evidence-based uh, preventative interventions that in an ideal uh, scenario would be employed um, across the board, unfortunately, in a big part of South Africa. Um, these services, these interventions um, are not necessarily government sanctioned. They often driven by um, NGOs or NPOs who deal specifically with um, uh, populations like uh, people who inject drugs. Um, so these would be programs involving um, needle and syringe services or exchange needle exchange programs. Um, something that is uh, unfortunately still quite underdeveloped within the South African healthcare system, and certainly uh, forms almost no component of our of our training, um, is something like uh, opioid substitution therapy, which is a um, a big uh, void in a in a lot of our experience and a lot of the care that we. Um, that we provide to this population. And then, you know, we mentioned um, a number of uh, uh, potentially well, preventable interventions in the form of vaccines. So we mentioned the Tdap, you know, the, the tetanus um, um, uh, vaccination. Uh, I think it's worthwhile mentioning something like the hepatitis B um vaccine as well that should be offered to people who inject drugs as a preventative intervention. So Evan, our micro-male audience is varied and consists of clinicians and students that treat a variety of different patients. So we always try and address age and gender issues on all of our episodes. Is there anything specific we need to know about that relates to age or gender on this particular topic? I think maybe not necessarily related to age, but I think within um, gender, um, women who inject drugs have a far more complex dynamic related to accessing healthcare, um, related to um, gender-based violence, uh, complicating um, the experience of um, coming to hospital or being um, or being assisted um, uh, at all, 
Um, so that's that's something which um, has to be dealt with um, uh, as well uh, on on top of all the other complexities. Uh, with regards to age, there isn't anything uh, specific that that I'm aware of that uh, influences or significantly modifies the the presentation um, or the care. Right, that's really important to know. Thank you for that. Okay, Evan, this really brings us pretty much to the end of this episode. So, can you give our listeners a quick take home message? Yeah, I think. Um, the take-home message for those who are looking at this with um, infectious diseases goggles is to maybe take off the infectious diseases goggles and try and look at it with a far greater sense of perspective because very often if we only focus on the infectious diseases component, we're going to lose sight of a number of critical components of um of the care of these patients um and you know if we don't if we don't address a lot of the core uh issues relating to people who use drugs then treating the infectious diseases complications is is likely to be um a potentially compromised so for example starting someone on antiretroviral therapy if we don't consider their circumstances when they out the hospital um, particularly related to um, follow-up or um, uh, adherence issues, you know, very, very often that's uh, the result of um, other factors that maybe we, we didn't consider in the initial consultation. Um, other take-home messages to consider are to remember a broader differential from a, a microbiological sense where even though the clinical syndromes may mirror um, a similar picture to that which someone in the general population may present with, the microbiology is general population plus a bit extra. So the standard organisms that we are familiar with, um, but then particularly relating to things like skin and soft tissue infections and infective endocarditis, we've got to add things like gram negatives, particularly pseudomonas, and in the case of infective endocarditis, to always consider fungal um, causes as well for those um, for those clinical presentations. And then I think the the one important uh, component of this, which is probably my biggest take home message, is to use the opportunity to not only focus on the clinical presentation of the syndrome that the person has presented with, but use it as an opportunity to explore a number of other risks that the person may have. So even if they come in with endocarditis, it's an opportunity to look into uh, a viral hepatitis screen, an HIV test, and a, a STI screen. So these are... Um, opportunities for us to really get a, a, a broader assessment of the of the person um, when they when they're with us usually for the short period of time that that they are um, then I must just also as one of my final take-home messages thank 
um, a colleague and friend, Dr. Andrew Scheiber, who is a technical advisor at TB HIV Care, and he's also a researcher at the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Pretoria. He has been um, a, a critical component of uh, a lot of the research uh, involving people who use drugs within South Africa, and he was also a, a critical part of uh, an amazing um, guideline that has been published through the South Af- Southern African Journal of HIV Medicine, which is the Southern African HIV Clinician Society Guidelines for Harm Reduction. Um, it's an unbelievably uh, detailed and comprehensive document from 2020. Um, a lot of the information is still uh, amazingly relevant. It goes into incredible detail regarding the care of these patients. So if there are any listeners who would um, uh, care to look into some of the topics we've discussed um, on, a, on a deeper level, then um, reading these guidelines is, is absolutely uh, essential, essential reading. And, and one thing that I must just mention, we haven't really discussed it much um, that the guidelines deal with is the, the language um, and the terminology surrounding this population and this area of medicine where a lot of us uh, within the healthcare sector are, are guilty of falling into uh, a lot of old stereotypes, uh, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of myths, um, a lot of very uh, poor, biased and prejudiced terminology, which um, if we are going to be dealing with this population, then um, there, there are a number of really fundamental um, language issues that have to form part of the care that we provide to these patients. And that's, that is covered in the, in the guidelines as well. Thank you for that excellent summary. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your insights on this topic, and I'm very certain it's going to be a great learning source to our audience. We'll make sure to add the guidelines and the references you've talked about to our show notes so all of our listeners can can have access to those as well. And Evan, I really hope we can see you again on MicroMail sometime in the future. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Also, a lot of learning experiences for me behind the scenes as well, just so you know. Um, and thanks for the opportunity. Listeners, this is a topic not often discussed in the low and middle income settings. So if you have any feedback, or even if you'd like to share some of your personal experiences in, in management or while you've been learning as well, we'd really love for you to get in touch with us. Remember, you can do so by email or on social media. So until next time, that's it for me, Vin, your microbe messenger, and the rest of the microbe mail team. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Thank you.